You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Happy Saturday, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. You know, well, first off, it's Kentucky weekend. I guess I should lead with that. It's also Halloween weekend. We got dark mode today. Those black uniforms look just sick. I Riley, I'm not sure Kentucky is going to know how to handle that coming out of the tunnel. So uh, we have David Wagner with us. David's been a good friend of the show, a friend of mine. He is a portfolio manager with Aptus Capital. And we're going to talk about, he's responsible for equity research, selection, evaluation of macro-level trends, and advising about the current market environment. So we're going to talk about all this stuff going on, all the volatility, unpredictability, inflation, rising interest rates, how's all that likely to affect you and me and what can you do, what should you do about it? But the reason I'm bringing up the Kentucky game is because my man here is wearing blue and white to the studio. Is that illegal to do here uh, this week, uh, Jimmy B? <laughs> well, at least it doesn't say UK on it. <laughs> it's blue, but it doesn't say. So anyway, so tell tell our uh, listeners why you're. I mean, you live in Cincinnati, but uh, tell tell us about your Kentucky affiliation. Born and raised in Cincinnati, but I can tell you, my my blood it is not red. I bleed blue, baby. I'm University of Kentucky <laughs> graduate. Graduated in the year 2012, the year the Kentucky basketball team won the national championship. So you know we've been uh, we've had this date. I know Will Levis, our quarterback for Kentucky, he's had this date circled on his calendar ever since that pick six he threw last year at Commonwealth Stadium. So I know we're ready to go and uh, we're going to be bringing it, especially uh, in the first quarter of this game because I know who shines in the first quarter of most games this year, and it's been Tennessee. It has been. I know Kentucky fans usually after this game every year say wait until basketball season but that really hasn't worked very well the last what seven or eight years since rick barnes got here rick rick barnes has kind of had uh, john kyle perry's uh, name uh, uh, on his belt for quite some time right now so so for all the listeners out there you know that's what i always say to uh, jimmy brogan when we talk that hey we're we're basketball school and he always happens to bring up the fact that uh kyle perry versus uh y'all's coach over there uh, has a losing record Yes, he does, since Rick Barnes got here. <laughs> well, anyway, let's dive in. So there's just a lot going on, and, and I want to get into a lot of the, these things. Before we do, though, you know, there's two things that I feel like are certain about markets, David. One is that they're unpredictable, and the second is they're volatile. They get We go through periods of heightened volatility. Now, this year's very unusual volatility. We'll get into all that, but, I mean, the reality is that's the way markets are. Let's talk about the importance of time. We know that in the short term, the market is a crapshoot, but given time, markets, at least historically, have delivered. Can you just touch on 
the importance of keeping, and we'll talk in this show about how to create a financial plan that allows you to focus on time, even if you're close to retirement and drawing income. But David, talk to about about the importance of time. Yeah, you know Warren Buffett. He's one of the most famous investors of all time, up there with the ranks of of Ben Graham, uh, Harry Markowitz. And one thing that he has always said: it's your time in the market not timing the market. So we've done our own studies over at Aptus just showing how important it is to stay invested during the periods of volatility. Because when you try to time the market, you not only have to be once or correct once, you have to be right twice when you sell and also when you buy. So, uh, you know, I try to be an encyclopedia of information, Jimmy B. And we did a study and it went back to 1995. The average return of the S&P 500, which is the main benchmark for U.S. large caps, it has returned on average per year, if you've been invested the entire time, 9.5%. If you missed out on the five best days, only five days over the last 27 years, your return is actually about 8.2%. So more than one percentage point less on an annualized basis. If you take that out, say you missed the 20 best days of the market over the last 27 years, well, then your return goes down close to about 5%, just a little over half of what it was if you were to stay invested during that entire time period. And I think, you know, you could come back to, to me today and say, hey, David, you know what, it's, let's, let's just say we, we, we can miss those five best days, those 20 best days. But that's really hard to do because the majority of those days, those best days that you see out in the market, they actually happen during the periods where you see the most amount of volatility. They tend to happen during bear market rallies. And, you know, behavioral finance is a huge thing. And the, there's a thing called re, a recency bias. And if you just look back into the most recent time period of volatility, let's go back to COVID, Jim. And if you remember during March and April, you'd have a market that would be, say, down 8%. And the following day, it would be up 7%. The next day, down 5%, then up 8%. Those are the best days that you'd be missing out on because the majority of those days, as I said, occur when volatility is at its highest. Which is when typically a lot of people are fearful and you just got to be careful we don't make mistakes. Let's talk about volatility. You know, if we look at the number of days this year that the market has been up or down, volatility, remember folks, it's not just down, volatility is up as well, and that actually goes right into what David was saying. But if we look at how often we've had days that moved more than 2%, It's been an extremely volatile year. So what is the cause, David, of all this volatility? So you're exactly right, Jim. Volatility breeds volatility. Volatility can be to the downside. Volatility can be to the upside. But at the genesis, at its core, why why has the market been so volatile? Well, one, let's just put this in historical context. In an average year, and I think this fact dates back to the early 1950s or so the average drawdown from peak to trough of the market is close to about you know 15 16% in an average year in an average year okay this year we've had a peak to trough of about 24% so in historical context it's not crazy you know out of the way of a ton of volatility yeah, this is actually the amount of downturn is less than the average bear market so far absolutely it's just been extremely volatile getting there exactly the average bear market tends to be down about 33 percent for large caps about 36 percent for small caps so being the fact we're at 24 percent 
in the grand scheme of things, it's not horrible. But we definitely feel the volatility out there in the market, especially if you look at your portfolios. A lot of the volatility in your portfolios that you're seeing aren't isn't coming from the stock side. It's actually coming from the fixed income side, the bond side. Bonds are down 15% this year. And we know, historically speaking, that bonds, well, they tend to be the safe asset class. All right, stocks, they tend to be the more volatile asset class. But as I just mentioned, you know, fixed income, well, it's down 15%. The average annual drawdown for fixed income tends to be, say, 2 3%. So that is kind of the reason why we're seeing so much volatility, not just in what we look at the stock market, but in our, in our individual portfolios. When we really dive into things, let, let, let's kind of look at inflation and Federal Reserve policy because, and, and actually, before we get there, David, let's talk about, Talk a little bit about how the, the market, and, and we've talked about this a lot this year. You know, we see economic data. We see data that happened last month or, or last week or yesterday, and the market reacts to that data. But the market is actually looking forward four to six to eight to nine months, right? It's looking at what does this really mean for where the economy and profitability of U.S. companies is going to be six months from now? Talk about the importance of how that dynamic works because, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, we're going to head into recession. That doesn't necessarily mean the market's going to go down more. Oh, 100%. You know, you tend to see stocks bottom six to nine months before we, as an economy, head into a recession. I mean, let's just go back to COVID. The market bottomed on March 23rd of 2020. And that was not even at, you know, the the height of shutdowns in the United States. That came around June. Yet the bottom for the market was on March 23rd. And, you know, we didn't start to see the economy really start to reopen, especially in, well, Cincinnati or Ohio, and I assume here down in Knoxville, you know, close to August or September. That's six months after the market bottom. So what I'm trying to say is the market and what you just said, Jim, the market is a forward-looking mechanism, okay? It looks ahead. It looks through the windshield, not the rearview mirror of the car. And that comes up into the next debate is, hey, you know, is there a difference between the economy and the market. And most people say, no, there isn't. But in fact, there is. The market is the mechanism where you have a lot more short-term volatility of uh, investor sentiment regarding stocks and bonds. Okay, But over the long term, the market, the stock market, is driven by economic data. And right now in this market, we are seeing a lot of volatility. You know, we're seeing it on a daily basis. Jim, you just mentioned, you know, we've seen almost more 2% intraday moves this year than we have probably over the last since the dot-com bubble. It's back in the early 2000s. But there is a difference between the stock market and the economy. The economy right now, and I think a lot of people would uh, um, disagree with me here, but the economy actually right now is quite strong. The U.S. consumer is sitting on more capital than they ever have. There's actually no analogous period to the U.S. consumer, whether you look at the bottom 50% cohort and the largest 50% cohort of wealthiness in the United States relative to pre-COVID. And if you actually go back to pre-COVID, the average U.S. household has a 30% more net wealth than they did before COVID. And if, if you well, go, yeah, actually, let's dive into that a little bit because the expectation, I think, was that in the last quarter, some of those numbers would really start to be hit because of the impact of inflation and rising interest rates. Yes. The reality is we haven't seen the impact, or have we seen the impact as much as maybe we thought we would? So how I like to look at this is a consumer's income statement, so what they bring in versus their expenses, and that gives you your net income, how much you are able to put into your savings account. And then I compare that to a consumer's balance sheet, and that's how much they have in their savings account, their checking account, uh, if you uh, have an investment account, or in the net value 
of your house. So right now, the income statement, given inflation, people are continuing to spend right now because they, they have the capital. They're spending more for those goods. So their savings rate, how much they are collecting at the end of the day, has actually fallen to about a 20-year low. It's about 3.2% right now as a savings rate, much below than where it has been on average over the last 20 years. But what's happening is just because they're not saving as much, they're spending more because the cost of goods are going up means that they're starting to take money out of their balance sheet, out of their savings, out of their checking account, out of their their investment account to be able to continue to pay for that basket of goods that they're used to spending on right now. But luckily, yes, they're spending more, but their nest egg right now, that balance sheet item of the U.S. consumer is much stronger than where it has been, like I mentioned, ever since pre-COVID and back to 2010. So American consumers were somewhat prepared for some stress in the economic system. Uh, The question is how much and when do things start to show cracks? Yeah. So, And we want to get into all that. Are we starting to see cracks? So I'll tell you what, we're going to get to our first break. We're visiting with David Wagner. He is with Aptus Capital. Uh, he's been a good friend of the station, uh, or excuse me, of the show, and also a friend of mine. We do a lot of work with Aptus Capital, and he's head of equity research. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the challenges we're seeing. We really want to dive into fl- inflation. Is the Federal Reserve doing enough? Are they likely to overshoot? What are some of the challenges that we likely will see moving forward? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're visiting with David Wagner. He's head of equity research at Aptus Capital. Uh, They're located down in Fairhope, Alabama. But David himself actually lives in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's in for the weekend. We're going to be going to the Kentucky game today. And so he's in a good mood for now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just fortunate that uh, you're the worth all you, you. I'm honored that you're taking me to the game as a Kentucky fan is what I'm trying to say. Well, you have to realize my dad grew up in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, yeah, I know and he grew, he grew up, up Kentucky, a huge yeah. Kentucky fan, but then he went to grad, undergrad at UT and ended up working for UT for 25 years. So it was kind of like Tennessee was 1A for him and <laughs> Kentucky was 1B. He cheered for Kentucky all the time unless they were playing Tennessee, which is kind of weird. Hatfields and McCoys usually no love lost. I, I, I'm happy that you are admitting to all your listeners out there that your father, who was an awesome man, if you guys have ever a chance to talk to Jim about his father, he has the greatest stories about him, that he was a Kentucky fan. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's talk about inflation. Uh, no, it, it has not started coming down. Uh, there's a lot of speculation of how much it will or will it come down. I guess uh, first question, David, is the Federal Reserve doing enough? That is a catch 22 question right now because i definitely think if you ask many of your listeners out there right now what is the biggest problem in the economy right now and it's going to be inflation you're going to the gas station you're paying more per gallon 
for a gallon of gas right now. You go to Kroger, you're paying more for your basket of groceries right now. And the microcosm for what the Fed is doing right now from a quantitative tightening standpoint, the genesis of what they're doing to raise the federal funds rate to try to slow down this economy that was overheating due to the amount of stimulus that went into the market. The microcosm, why they're doing this is because of inflation right now. And when you look at what the Fed tries to do, when the market starts to overheat, they try to put some type of restrictive policy in place to make sure we're not growing too fast. What the Fed likes to do over longer periods of time is have stability. Whether it's price stability or some type of monetary policy stability is what is at the core of what they're trying to do at all times. And coming out of you know COVID, um, there's definitely a lot of stimulus. I mean, the balance sheet of what the Federal Reserve was doing went from about $2.5 trillion to $9 trillion. So there was a lot of excess liquidity out there in the market. And that's why, one, the stock market was so great. That's yeah, why the consumer is so strong. But what they're trying to do right now is definitely try to pull back a few levers to make sure that the economy economy doesn't uh, overheat. But if you think about that from my previous comment of a catch-22, they don't want it to overheat, but they also don't want it to underheat right now, causing the economy to go into some type of a recession. So what a lot of people are saying out there from an analogous perspective is that they're trying to land a plane on a runway that continues to get shorter and shorter. Let's unpack some of that a little bit. When you talk about the enormous stimulus since the pandemic, there are two areas we've seen that stimulus. One is, of course, there's been stimulus from Congress, from Washington, and then there's been tremendous stimulus from the Federal Reserve. So when you say expand the balance sheet by trillions of dollars, that's basically cash that's flooding into the economy, right? Now they have to try to undo some of that. Absolutely. I think the best analogy that I have for this, because, you know, in the financial world, there's a lot of financial jargon that doesn't make sense. And to be quite honest, quantitative tightening is probably one of them because we've never the economy's never really had to go through some type of quantitative tightening scale, especially to the scale that what you're seeing now. You had a lot of QT back in 2018. But for the longest time, we've had quantitative easing in this market since the financial crisis. So what is QE? What is QT? So what is quantitative easing? What is quantitative tightening? And I, I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, but it's an analogy I've actually only used once. But say you go to a party. Say you're going to a Halloween party to celebrate the Kentucky uh, Wildcats victory today over the Tennessee Volunteers. And there's a punch bowl. You're not endearing yourself. I know audience. I'm not. I'm not. All right, let's say you're celebrating <laughs> no, it's Tennessee okay. go Volunteers ahead. It's win okay. over the Kentucky Wildcats. You go to a party and you, you see a punch bowl. The punch bowl's filled. But, you know, you have someone come along and put some Tito's vodka in it, okay, to make everyone feel all loosey-goosey and fun. Everyone gets a little bit of drunk. That's kind of what quantitative easing is right there. There's a lot of excess liquidity out there in the market. And as many of you all probably know, myself included here, when you have too much Tito's, too much punch at these parties, the next day you don't feel the best. You have a hangover. And that's kind of what quantitative tightening it is. It's when you take away that punch bowl, you stop drinking, you don't have any hair on the dog, all right, and you're hungover. And that's what quantitative tightening is. It's the exact reversal of what quantitative easing is. It's taking liquidity out of the market to try to restrict growth in the market moving forward. And in the mainstream media, I know it's talked about a lot in the financial media, but in the mainstream media, there's a lot of talk. All the talk is about rising interest rates. But the reality is behind the scenes, the Fed is taking $95 billion a a month, right? Yes. That they're basically taking cash out of the economy. Yep. And that's what they're trying to do. That's one of the levers that they're really trying to do to restrict the economy from growing. Because what is one of the best ways to attack inflation? 
All right. Well, inflation at its core happens when there's more demand than supply, driving up the prices of goods. So if the Fed has the ability to create less liquidity out there in the market to restrict economic growth moving forward, they're trying to attack that supply demand imbalance. Let's try to get less demand per unit of supply here to bring prices back into equilibrium. So as we have listeners this morning, everybody's feeling the impact of inflation, the gas pump, the grocery store. All of these things. Now, as you mentioned, people have had excess savings built up. Also, wage inflation has been very high. Companies are having to pay a good bit more to keep people, which is then helping cover the inflationary pressure. What do you think in the next, say, six months, David, people can expect with inflation? So from a mathematical standpoint, it will come down. You continue to see market pundits out on CNBC, Bloomberg say, hey, we are at peak inflation. That could be true. All right. I think I actually am in the camp that it is true, but that doesn't mean that inflation is coming down to historical levels. From 2000, from the year 2000 to the year 2020, the average annualized inflation rate was 1.8%. So that is very much different than what we're seeing right now on a year over year basis of 8.6%. So, yes, we expect inflation to come down because you have more difficult comps because how you look at this inflation is on a year-over-year comparison. And last year's inflation was sky high. Not only was it sky high, it was consistent throughout the year. So from a mathematical perspective, yes, you will see inflation start to come down. But once you start to look at the components that comprise inflation, it's going to be um, what's called owner's equivalent rent. It is basically the average rental rate that some will see out in the market. And it tends to be a lagging variable from home prices. And we all know that home prices right now, they're sky high. I mean, just go out look at the affordability index. It's very difficult to go out to buy or sell a home right now because where interest rates are. So that is one of the major, largest components of inflation. But I think the, the, the wild card here, the wild card from inflation that I'm seeing right now, and Jim, you hit on it, is actually wage inflation. All right, wage inflation is sticky. When you increase the wages of one of your employees from, let's say, 15 to $18 an hour, you can't come back to them one year later, two years later, say, hey, you know what? Inflation has come back down. I'm going to take your hour, average hourly wage back from 18 back down to $15. That tends to be the sticky aspect within inflation. And there's other aspects within inflation that you're starting to see and continue to become very much uh, a sticky. So that's why I think inflation moving forward, yes, it may come down, but I will think inflation will be higher for longer as we move out into the near future. And the wage inflation, I've been saying for a while now, David, that it, until we see wage inflation start to come down a little bit, which we are starting to see some signs of that, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but until that really starts to come down, I don't see how inflation doesn't come down to anywhere near the levels of what the Fed, where the Fed wants it at 2%. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. So there's a economic data point that is out there in the market. It's called the jolts figure. All right, it is the job openings. And heading into the pandemic, heading into 2020, the jolts number, so the jobs openings, the available jobs open for you to go get, was about 7 million. Right now, we stand about 10.5 million. And the Federal Reserve, they've come out and said, hey, you know, we're going to try to attack um, – employment, okay? But we're not going to try to attack current employment. We're going to try to attack to bring down the level of job openings right now before we really start to harm the individual U.S. consumers, the, the hardworking Americans. We don't want them to lose their jobs. We want to narrow down on the job openings. And that is going to, in a way, take away the pricing, the wage 
pricing power of an individual for a wage perspective. Because if there's a lot of job openings, you can go to your employer and say, hey, you know what? I'm making $18 here. I can go to the same exact job at XYZ company doing the same thing and make 20. I'm going to, I'm going to swap jobs here. So if the Fed tries to take away a lot of those job openings, your power to increase your wages goes down. So that's what they're trying to do, the lever that they are trying to pull right now to bring down wage inflation. And Jim, you're exactly correct. We've started to see wage inflation turn or at least moderate a little bit, but it's still much higher than where it has been significant and where it has been over the past, say, 10 years. Yeah, I think employers, I mean, I'm a small employer. We've got 15, 16 employees. Fundamentally, I don't want to lose good people. No, because of, uh, you know, so we've been, you know, we have to do the right thing to keep those good people. Plus, we want to reward them anyway because they do great work for us. But, you know, I see that even on my end. And then that's going to set a higher base moving forward because, you, like you say, I mean, we, we, we're not going to pull that back. And employers not, aren't going to pull that back. They can't. Absolutely not. So everything's being set higher. Yes. Um, now, obviously, when we talk about inflation, there's, there's, you know, other than, you know, obviously the cost. But as a borrower and an investor, it affects us in very, very different ways. So typically, as we're younger in our lives and we're doing things like buying houses and, you know, growing our net worth, we're, we're using debt to our advantage, especially with a mortgage, that becomes more difficult with inflation. Now, as an investor, though, in retirement, there might be other opportunities. So when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about those two aspects of higher interest rates, both Borrowing money, if you're looking at borrowing at, at wanting to buy a house or, or looking at mortgaging, but then also investing money. The bond market has taken a huge hit this year, a really unprecedented hit. So what does this mean for us as we move forward, both as a someone who consumes but also someone who invests? So that we're stay with us. We're visiting with David Wagner. He's chief of equity research for Aptus Capital. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. You can, you can hear us every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m., again from 3 to 4 p.m., you can also catch all of our podcasts on our on our uh, website. If you go to BroganFinancial.com and click on radio, you can listen to all of our shows and our dollars and cents segments and my retirement minutes that run every week on this station. I do want to mention um, I've got one more class. Pellissippi State is having one more class that I teach for adult education uh, here the rest of this year, and that is November the 8th. So it's in a week and a half. And it's tax planning in the new age. And I cover all the major. It's just a one-night class, 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening at Pellissippi Hardin Valley. And I'm going to talk about all the major areas where we see the ability to make an impact in your tax bill in retirement. You've heard me say it all the time. You have more control, typically, of your income taxes in retirement than at any other time in your life. 
How do you prepare for that now? How do you take advantage of the sweet spot between retirement age and age 72 when you have those required minimum distributions? What are all those ins and outs? If we're going to have a choppy market for a while, don't know that that's the case. But if that is true and we have more muted returns in the stock market over the next seven or eight years, anything you can do to lower your tax bill is going to help your net return to help buffer some of those muted uh, some of that muted market performance. We're visiting the, oh, you can, uh, you can find out more about that class on November the 8th. Go to PellissippiTaxPlanning.com and you can download a syllabus and click to register. You can also call Pellissippi State at 539-7167. We're visiting this morning with David Wagner. He's with Aptus Capital. Here's, he's there. He's responsible for equity research. He also he helps evaluate macro level trends in the current market environment. We're talking about some of the challenges right now. I mentioned there before the break, David, when interest rates go higher from an investment perspective, there's kind of a double-edged sword here. On the one hand, well, I don't know if that's the right analogy, but there's two sides to the coin, a better analogy. One is, as we're consuming, and especially as we're younger, we're buying things, businesses borrow money to grow, consumers borrow money for their mortgages, Talk about the impact of rising rates on people. Let's say our listeners may be looking at buying a house or refinancing a mortgage. Mortgage rates are back up around 7%. They've really shot up in the last month and a half. What do you see for mortgage rates? If somebody's looking to buy a house, and I know we don't have a crystal ball, where do you think we're going here? Do you think they're just going to keep climbing and climbing? Do you think at some point they may go back the other way? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. But I do want to take a step back here for a second, Jim Berg. And I, I think I heard Riley play uh, Rocky Top heading into the last break, knowing that I'm a Kentucky fan. So I, I do love the banter here right now. So, uh, But, you know, <laughs> rising interest rates has kind of been the genesis for a lot of the market movement you've seen this year, whether it is on the stock sides or the fixed income, which is also known as the bond side. On the stock side, rising interest rates have hurt the valuations, which is a uh, measure of investor sentiment to the market, whether it's at the market level as a whole or at an individual company, it has hurt valuations. On bonds, bonds have the inverse relationship with interest rates. When interest rates go up, bond prices fall and vice versa. When interest rates fall, bond prices go up. But what we see, that's what we see from an investment standpoint. And this question here hones in more what are individuals seeing on the consumer side? And what you're seeing is probably the, the, the area where one, where most listeners are affected by is when you look at the 30-year mortgage. When we headed into this year, I mean, actually, just go back to at the bottom of COVID. You could go out and refinance your house at a 30-year mortgage, fixed mortgage, for close to 2.5%. All right, fast forward to today. Today, I think we saw just in the last two weeks across the United States, on average, the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate is above 7%. Jim, Jimmy B., do you know the last time we probably saw a 30-year mortgage rate that high? I would say about 20 years ago. You are good, spot on. The year 2000, okay? But then think of what's happened in the last 22 years. So right now we're seeing substantially higher interest rates, largest in 22 years. But over those last 22 years, you've also seen home prices rise substantially. I I don't know the figure on how much they've, uh, across the United States, risen on an annualized basis, housing prices. But we all know, and we can all see anecdotally in the market, that housing prices are much higher than where they were 
22 years ago. So well, when you so pair let, that together, you have higher interest rates and higher housing prices. That means your affordability, the ability for you to purchase XYZ size house has substantially gone down just over the last year. And the microcosm has been higher mortgage rates. Yeah, so people buy mortgages based on their payment for the most part. And so when the rates are low, they can afford a, a larger house. So when rates go up, and that, that actually is a great analogy for when you said, David, that when interest rates go up, stock valuations go down. I think a good way, to, a good analogy for that is a home. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if interest rates go from 3% to 7%, People can't afford to pay as much principal for the home because the interest rate is higher, so that should bring down the values of homes. So it's softening the real estate market. Well, that's one thing that the Fed is trying to do right now, too, because I just mentioned before that they are trying to you know, decrease the number of job openings in the market. One other thing that they're trying to do is, obviously, they're increasing interest rates, as I meant, to restrict growth. And one aspect of restricting growth is in the housing market. And if you have higher interest rates, obviously, you can afford less. And I'm going to spitball these numbers. Don't hold them to me. But go back to you know one year ago. You could get a 30-year fixed mortgage, say, for 4%. You could afford a 400 or let's say half a million dollar home. Be very fortunate to afford a $500,000 home. All right? Now, with mortgage rates going up to 7%, you're, you could probably afford closer to maybe what? A $300,000 home, yeah, a $250,000 home. I'm spitballing numbers there, but it just shows the magnitude. All right, The sensitivity of home prices, how much you can afford, is based off of interest rates here. So when we talk about where mortgage rates are likely to go, there are two factors. One is the, you know, the Fed is raising rates. Now, that's the overnight federal funds rate. That doesn't necessarily affect the rate on a 30-year mortgage. Uh, however, the Fed is also quantitative tightening. And all of those things could end up driving mortgage rates even higher. Is that? Do you agree with that? I mean, what I would look at that to answer that question is from a macroeconomic standpoint. We know that the big thing, the, the Federal Reserve has two mandates. One is price stability, and the other is going to be full employment. And what Jerome Powell said at Jackson Hole back in August of this year, he's putting out that um, you know full employment mechanism right now. He's solely focusing on inflation. And the only way to attack inflation is basically to increase interest rates to a point where they're above the uh, whatever metric you look at from inflation, whether it's headline inflation, core inflation, core PCE. So what I would see moving forward to answer that question of where do we see the 30-year mortgage moving forward? Well, it's probably going to be, I don't know if it's going to move higher from here. I don't know if it's going to, I don't think it's going to move substantially lower from here, but I do think that we are kind of in a new age of higher for longer uh, mortgage rates in the near future. Basically, until the Fed creates some type of pivot, and what a pivot is, is when they change direction of their monetary policy, i.e. being less restrictive by bringing down the federal funds rate. And until we see some type of move by the Fed, which I don't see happening because inflation is the number one risk in my mind to the market right now, I don't see 30-year mortgage rates coming down substantially. Now, the investment side of the equation is people can, heck, you can get a one-year CD paying 4% now. Now, the, the ironically, if you go out five years, you can't make much more than that. So it's yeah. kind of flat right now. So the investment climate has changed. Talk a little bit about, David, the balance of stocks and bonds we've historically seen. You mentioned that when interest rates go up, bonds go down. So we've had a pretty bad bond market this year. 
Talk about some of the dangers of a classic traditional 60-40 portfolio where you're 60% in stock and st- or stock funds and 40% in bond funds. Yeah. So let's let's do some trivia here. And for the listeners at home, uh, I was over at Jim's house uh, talking with his wife last night, uh, Dee Dee, and we're all having a, a glass of bourbon. And, and she was trivia. She was putting out a lot of trivia for us. So I'm going to come back at you, at, uh, Jim, oh, no. with some with some trivia here uh, in in honor of, of Dee Dee for this. All right. How bad has this year been relative to history from a 60-40 portfolio perspective? And for the listeners out there, that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. All right. How bad do you think it has it been? Or actually, let me phrase it this way. Um, this is the second worst year ever. Behind what year? What year, from a 60-40 perspective, oh, has been worse than this year? <laughs> oh, goodness, David. You've got me on the spot. I know I did. It, I knew it was going to be either the first or second worst year we've ever had at the sixty forty. Uh, it would have to be a period where we had rate interest rates shooting up. I don't know. You, you'll just have to tell us. Well, I, I think given the recency bias I would talked about on here before was everyone be like, oh, you know, the financial crisis this is probably the worst year from the financial crisis. Uh, wrong. This year, year to date, the sixty forty portfolio is fifty percent worse than the worst year in the fi- Great Financial Crisis in two thousand eight. You actually have to go back to the Great Depression to see how the magnitude of how bad this year was has right, only been beaten by the year nineteen thirty one, the Great Depression. All right, just put that in context. That just shows how horrible this year has been. And as I've alluded to on my my commentary here, is the microcosm for that has been the substantial rise in interest rates. And that has hurt fixed income portfolios, which has been the the main sake safety aspect of one's portfolio for basically since 1981. Interest rates have been coming down since 1981. If you go back to that year, I think the 10-year treasury was close to 17%. Okay, So we have had 40 years of a bull market rally within fixed income up until this year. And we basically had the investors had the, the rug swapped out from underneath them as we've seen rates rise over the last two years from maybe a quarter of a percent to where it is now at 4.25%. So to put that in historical context, this is, one, this is the second worst year ever for a 60-40 portfolio. And to be clear, a lot of that, because we mentioned earlier, is the st- the bear market in stocks is not even uh, is below average. It's just extremely volatile. So, but but what we are in a bear market, it's the big hit to fixed income in the bond market that's really causing that. I mean, we've never had a year, I don't think, David, where the bond market has been down fifteen percent. No, the average peak to trough is like two percent. Yeah. But put that in context for investors, especially those that skew that are in retirement, those that have a very conservative portfolio, a conservative portfolio, or even a moderate portfolio, because you have a heavy allocation, a heavy exposure to fixed income, because that's supposed to be the cornerstone of your portfolio. That's supposed to be the rock. That's supposed to be the price stability aspect of your portfolio, where you're garnering some type of yield. But let's put that into perspective now moving forward through the windshield. As you mentioned, Jim, you are starting to finally get some type of yield out there in the fixed income market. You haven't been able to get a two-year, whether a two-year, a five-year, ten-year uh, a treasury um, at current yield since 2007. All right, you can now be paid over four percent, especially for the shorter duration treasuries, over four percent to hold on to your capital. And given that they're treasuries, that should be safer, relatively speaking, because it's government-backed income. 
That's exactly right. Uh, there's so much we could continue talking about on this. <laughs> Absolutely. I, th- my takeaway on this, David, would be yeah, for your for our listeners is I think that's classic sixty forty portfolio. Uh, it is kind of dangerous moving forward. We're in a different type of a world. And so what that means is, I think, a couple takeaways. One is be sure you're measuring the inherent volatility in your portfolio. How long has it been since you rebalanced? What does your diversification actually look like? What can you expect in terms of the volatile movements of your portfolio as compared to the market? Believe it or not, measuring past risk is a pretty good predictor of future risk. Not what are you going to make or lose, but if the market does this, what can you kind of expect out of your portfolio? How long's it been, or have you ever measured the risk in your portfolio? If you haven't, do that. And then the second part of that is a greater level of diversification with alternative asset classes like natural resources and commodities and real estate and energy. And and you can even own volatility, meaning you can have a lever that when markets get more volatile, you actually have an investment in there that makes money just on the sharp moves up and down. You can do all of that. So re-look at the diversification in your portfolio. When we come back, I want to dive into the effect of the midterm elections, election cycles. What does this really mean? Not a political discussion but a discussion of what we might see coming out of the midterm elections. What does that mean for policy changes, and how does that maybe going to affect our wallets? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back on this Halloween weekend. It is Kentucky game, and we're anxious for the game tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're listening to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I have my friend and colleague David Wagner in, who's actually a Kentucky fan. We will try not to give him too hard of a time. Uh, before we maybe close about the game, David, <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> midterm elections. It's very interesting when we look at election cycles. So, for example, if you go back all the way through all of our history and you look at four-year presidential cycles, overwhelmingly the worst year is year two correct which is where we are right now yes sir and overwhelmingly the best year is year three a hundred percent we're also coming out of that we'll be coming out of midterms and typically the markets do really really well the 12 months following a midterm election yes if we dig deeper are there maybe some good reasons of why that is? Like, why do we see these kinds of cycles? We know the market historically has liked a divided government. That comes to mind because the pendulum typically swings in midterm elections. But give us your view on this. Yeah. So let me ask you a question first. It's a binary answer. Yes or no, Jim. Do you think there will be a recession in 2023? 
Well, I know where you're going with this because I know the historical data. I think that we I are going to set you up, can I? I think we're going to have a recession either in the back half of 2023 or the early part of 2024. But I know where you're going on the election cycle. He hedged himself there, Riley, on my comment. But yes, Jim, you're exactly correct. The second year of a general election, okay, tends to be the worst year for markets over the four year cycle. On average, the S and P 500 has a drawdown of 196 percent. At some time during that year. Sometime during that year, peak to trough. And right now we're at about 24% in the market. So not outside of historical norms. But to dovetail on your next comment, that the market since 1958 is batting a 1,000% on being positive 12 months after the election. It's done it every single time. It's remarkable. The market has rallied into the midterm elections every single time since 1958, except for two years. It was 1974 and it was 1978. And Jim, what do you think the commonalities between 1974, 78, and this year is? Inflation. Bingo. You're exactly correct. Okay, so, you know, <laughs> I, what I would like to say is that, you know, I, I understand that it's bad in a thousand, that the market has been positive the 12 months following the midterm election every single year. All right, but you have to play devil's advocate with yourself because, and as many of the listeners know, there is no certainty in this market. The only certainty in this market is that there's probably the chance for volatility. All right, and the best thing to do is to stay invested during that volatility. But let's play devil's advocate here. All right, Jim, do you know how many times there has been a recession that has begun in the third year of a general election cycle? Yeah, I don't think it's ever happened. It you has, all at Aptus just put out something on that, I think this week or last week. Yep, it has never happened, okay? But if you ask most market pundits, like I just tried to ask yourself, they're expecting a recession in 2023. So I don't want to say that it's going to happen, you know, that the market will be positive 12 months from now, but I'm just saying that there's a lot of potential issues in this market right now where we may not see it occur this time. Yeah, it, it, we have to be very careful we don't play those kinds of trends. And there are Absolutely. the key takeaway there is there are some differences. So we just have to be careful. David Wagner, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great having you on. Hey, thanks for having me back, Jim. That's David Wagner. We've been discussing the economy and your wealth because greater wealth provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Thank you to Riley running the board. Thank you to Jill helping produce the show. Let's go Big Orange tonight. Let's beat them cats. C-A-T-S, cats, cats, cats. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.